1: Hidden, a true crime podcast, a forensic psychologist and a journalist explore the hidden motives behind unthinkable crimes while examining our deepest fears along the way. Hello, hidden Gens. This is a very special hidden hour tonight. And yes, it is it is Friday night, not Saturday. So thank you for uh, shifting your schedules if you're planning on Saturday to be with us Friday, because we are so honored to have uh, with us Tom (coughs) Evans. Tom Evans is also known as juror number 18 when it came to the Lori Vallow Daybell Trial in Boise, Idaho. Tom was there every day. I was there every day. We did not know each other. We could not speak. We could not look at each other. We could not acknowledge one another. <laughs> uh, he faced you faced Lori Vallow every day of trial, yeah. and looked directly at her. That's how the courtroom was situated. And where I sat, I looked straight ahead at jurors actually, and had to give you guys space and, and only tweet, live tweet from my phone as to not cause typing noises. But we're so grateful to see everyone here. Please let your friends know we are here tonight because this is going to be a great conversation. This is going to be a conversation among friends. Uh, We have questions for Tom, but it's not every day that um, someone with us, a guest with us has questions for us. And Tom has those for us tonight as well, uh, specifically Dr. John. So we are going to be talking to Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell case tonight, but specifically Tom's experience through Tom's lens, learning about the case through evidence at trial, and we'll turn the time over to Tom because because who we're all interested in right now tonight is Tom. But thank you everybody for being here tonight. This is going to be a conversation among friends. I did hit subscriber only on chat, and I made it five minutes. You have to be a subscriber for five minutes before you can join, just because this is we have such a sensitive guest with us tonight so uh, please be understanding of that and our moderators are going to be a little bit more vigilant tonight too um, with the chat so thanks everyone for being here john do you want to do you want to jump in and, and start talking to asking tom some questions and i'll i'll take a look at chat and make sure everything's good tech wise
2: sure so tom if you're okay maybe you could just uh, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself and We obviously know, I assume that the state of Idaho is like other states and that jury selection is is random. So presumably you received some type of summons to be on the jury, but then it's an interesting question about, could you tell us a little bit about the process, how you were selected?
3: Sure. So I've lived in Idaho for 20 years. I lived in Northern California before that. Spent most of my life as a contractor. Never expected to find myself on the jury for this case, for sure. And I didn't even know when I went in. I mean, I just got a notice in the mail to come in, so I did. And it took me a while to figure out what case it was for. I just <laughs> thought it was business as usual at the courthouse, even though there was a massive jury room. It was probably I don't know. There was hundreds of people in there, a hundred anyway. And I guess they had like 2,600 uh, call-outs for jurors. Wow! And somehow I ended up being one of the <laughs> One's on the jury. I don't still don't know how that happened.
2: Well, could you describe that process a little bit? I presume that both the prosecution, you obviously had to fill out a fairly detailed form describing a lot of things about yourself. Right. But the it would be up to the prosecution and the defense to, to vet you by your answers. Could, could you tell us a little bit about that process yeah, for you?
3: The first couple of times I got called in, it was just to fill out some forms. And so I did that. And, you know, wasted a few hours through that process. And then finally, I think it was the third day, I actually got called into court and we were asked questions by Judge Boyce. And um, mostly it was, you know, is this a hardship for you? And, you know, what do you know about this case? And it was kind of going down the line of people toward me. And I was thinking of all the things I could say to get out of this because, (laughs) you know it's a jury trial i don't, I don't want to <laughs> yeah know. some of the hardship cases that i heard before it got to me were pretty real and mine didn't seem like much by the time it came to me so i couldn't really you know say much about that but then the next thing was how do you not know about this case and i was just honest i i basically just said that i didn't really pay much attention to it because it was sorted it was sad and it, it didn't catch my interest at all and also during the COVID years, I spent a lot of time, we have a cabin up in Northern Idaho and I spent a lot of time up there. Where I have no internet or anything um, building that cabin. So I really didn't know much going in.
2: So yeah, that was, that was a question I was going to ask you actually, did, you know, did you, did you know anything about the case? Had you, had you seen it in the, I presume, cause you're in Idaho, you must've probably encountered some media talking about the case.
3: I, I knew of it. I knew what Lori looked like. I knew that kids had been killed, and I think I, I think I knew that they'd been found buried in the backyard. That's about it. I don't even know if I really knew that much.
1: I remember uh, listening to jury selection. We could not see you, Tom, or or anyone. They made all reporters sit in the overflow that week, but it was there were so many, and the questions they asked. Were uh, very repetitive and very detailed. They asked if you had seen the Netflix documentary. Did they ask that? I heard that many times. Yeah,
3: yeah. I think it was, ask- the defense attorney actually asked me that one. So here's the
1: question: that. Have you seen it now?
3: <laughs> yeah, I can find on it now. I know so much more about it now than I did when the trial was over. It's ridiculous. Okay. I mean, I yeah. walked out of there still with a million questions.
1: Well, you know, you and I met. Uh, and, and we'll go back to the beginning where John is, but you and I met at the sentencing in Rexburg. And even then, you, you know, you were willing to talk to me because I know that the Woodcocks and other people, you know, said, yeah, Lauren's, Lauren's safe. You can talk to her. But you didn't know who I was then. But now you certainly, as you say, you've you've heard and listened to everything. And-
3: oh, yeah, everything that I could, you guys. And actually going to that sentencing turned out to be a great thing for me because I did get to meet you and some other people that I was not expecting that. I didn't know, you know, I just picked a hotel in the town. I didn't know that it was gonna be the one that everybody was staying at and I was gonna walk (laughs) right into the lobby and there everybody was. So that was great. I I remember you were, uh, I think you were interviewing and Larry when I walked in, I believe, and just kind of walked right into the middle of that.
1: Yes, yes. But but that's what I remember about the jury selection is it was a lot about have you seen the Netflix documentary? Have you seen the Datelines? Have you yeah. seen what is the coverage you've seen? What, what were your answers to those questions? What had you seen?
3: I hadn't seen any of that. I hadn't watched any of the shows. I didn't. Like I said, I just didn't pay attention to it.
2: So it, it would be reasonable to say, I always wonder, I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of our gems wonder how they find jurors that are, reasonably unbiased in in situations like this where a case has, you know, international attention and everyone knows about it. And I guess you're helping us answer that question.
3: Well, and that's the big thing at the hearing right now. They're trying to get it moved back to Rexburg and the jury pool there is so much smaller. Right, It, It is even hard for me to believe that out of the 2,600 or whatever the number was, they were able to find 18 who knew as little as I did. Okay.
1: Many people say there's no way they'll find anyone that doesn't know about this in Idaho. So yeah, you're, you're answering the question, but, but yeah, I I'm surprised they're trying to move it back to Rexburg it's I'll be be harder I,
3: now after that trial, right?
1: Right. And even you knew of Lori Vallow, you knew what she looked like. You knew there were some children that were found yeah. in Rexburg. That would be harder.
2: So I guess if we're going to find unbiased jurors for Chad's trial, maybe we need another pandemic then with, with, <laughs> no, with some, <laughs> some cabins with some cabins in the middle of of you know beautiful places but 2600 is a, is a huge number of jurors to to that when you learned you were going to be seated as a juror how did you react to that or what was your
3: I what didn't was your realize, response? I didn't realize that we were boiled down to 18 so it's the second to the last day We're sitting in the courtroom. There's, you know, I think there was 42 people in there, it turns out. And they're doing this thing where um, the prosecution would write something down on a piece of paper and hand it to the bailiff. The bailiff would walk over to the defense. The defense would look at it. They would write something down, and the the bailiff would walk it back. This went on for hours and hours. I had no idea what they were doing. I'm just sitting there like brain dead watching this. But it turns (laughs) out that they they can each pick 12 jurors to just send away for, they didn't need to, to have a reason to do that. So mm-hmm. out of those 42, they sent away 24 and we were down to 18. So they're all done. They, they call out some juror numbers and say, you guys can go, thanks for your service and all that. And so there's 18 of us left in the room and I just thought I was another group of 18 and there was several other groups still. But then we walked out and the juror, jury administrator, Randy, started talking to us and then it dawned on me. Like I was probably the last one to figure this out, but I was actually on the jury. <laughs> and did, you, so did you, did you have any
1: idea that this was going to be Lori Vallow's trial then? I mean, you clearly started to think that this was a really big deal. The questions well, they were asking you some tough questions too, about children. Yeah. By that the point, of
3: course I knew. And and so when we, when we finally actually went into court for the first time, she was sitting there and I knew who she was. So, we walked in, sat down and she's there and she was like looking at each of us making eye contact and it hit me hard. This is what I'm in for.
1: That was one of the jury questions too. Can I ask you this? They they asked if you would be able to handle seeing some really difficult things. And I don't know if there was a single person that answered, Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, Many people said, that would be very, very difficult for them. They're unsure, but they would do their best. Other people simply said, "Absolutely, not. No way." Can Can I ask if you remember how you answered that question?
3: I, I don't remember how I answered, but I know I felt like I was probably as well equipped for that as anybody would be. Yeah.
1: yeah Thank you for sharing
3: that. that.
1: Yeah.
2: yeah. I think this would take us into opening arguments, and and this would would dovetail with your book, by the way, Tom. So you're you're you're. Writing a book, you or you're in the pro. You have written a book, I guess, right? And manuscript
3: is done. It's in the editing right now.
2: And could could you tell us the title of your
3: book? Uh, it's it's uh, Money, Power, and Sex: The Lori Vallow Bell Trial by Juror Number 18.
2: Okay, great. And so that brings us into opening arguments, where one of the prosecutors talked about this. Case being a case of money, power, and sex. So using it in the title of your book would obviously suggest that that seemed like an important moment for you. When you heard that, when you heard those opening arguments and you heard the prosecution use that term or describe it in those terms, Mm -hmm. what did you, how did you respond to that?
3: I don't know. I mean, that didn't have any special significance for me, I guess. I mean, I was just trying to understand what this was going to be all about at that point. I think more than anything, her opening statement was interesting.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, so what were your different reactions to both the prosecution and defense during those opening statements?
3: Um, I I got the feeling that the the defense was pretty on the ball. They seemed to have it down pat. What they wanted to prove, they seemed pretty sure of themselves. Um, The defense, honestly, they seemed very good. Um, both, Both those guys well-qualified. I've done a lot of research on them since, so I know what their past is and everything, but two really super qualified public defenders. I don't think you could find anybody better than those guys, but it just kind of felt like they were helpless. They didn't have a lot to go on there.
2: <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting to me to ask you these questions because I think those of us who know this case very well before the trial probably had some biases. So I, I think that, you know, I mean, we, we try not to, of course, but we try to be fairly uh, objective around here. But but sometimes it's hard to. So I was um,
3: evaluating everything as it was happening because I was so in the dark, I think. Okay. Make judgments on everybody. and
1: One thing I want to ask too is not only during the whole trial, hearing all of the heavy stuff you were hearing, I was able to go decompress. I would go out at lunchtime while you guys ate and talk here to our hidden gems and to our audience and share with them what I was feeling and what I had just heard. You were in lunch with a bunch of jurors, not allowed to even talk to each other about the case. Right. Isn't that right?
3: It it is right. We couldn't talk. And if if we even sounded like we might be talking about something, we would get reminded not to because possibly somebody would overhear or whatever, but. It was hard because we would go into a really impossibly small jury room. There's one table with everybody sitting around. It was nice. There was a window looking out in the mountains. Um, but that was hard for me to just be kind of stuck in that room all the time. I think we spent as much time as that in that room as we did in the courtroom, probably.
1: And you couldn't talk about what you were listening to. I, I think John, as a psychologist, would say that's a really great way to make trauma uh, even worse.
3: I think you yeah, know we all got a stuff lot. Stuff of- it
1: down, yeah. stuff it down, and don't talk about it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> we talked about everything else, and that well, was yeah.
1: What would you talk about? That's another question people have. That's a question to chat. Would you talk about sports, politics, like what do you talk about?
3: Yeah. The weather. No, we. I think we avoided politics because we all realized we're 18 strangers, and who knows where everybody's politics are. I think it became kind of clear through just personalities by the end where people were politically. And it's, Mm -hmm. you know, I think there was a good mix in there, which is great, but it's probably good that we avoided the subject. (laughs) So we talked about kids, grandkids, you know, the weather, we could look out and slowly see the snow receding up the mountain as, you know, it was springtime and starting to get nice outside.
2: See, Uh, that's what I said. I said the weather. He, thanks for confirming that yeah, uh, yeah. I, sorry I didn't mean to cut you off there Tom but I'm I think I don't want to lose what I think what Lauren is partially getting at there is the emotional impact did it having to deal with that level of trauma of yeah. of pain suffering yeah. every day for yeah. six weeks and, and not being able to process it with
3: anyone I mean what it was harder for me than I would have thought it would be but I think I was kind of in the role, I guess. Uh, I was older and I think, I don't know, there were some people that were really struggling. And so I kind of took on the role maybe of comforting them a little bit. And that probably helped me, I think more than, they they probably were helping me as much as I was helping them because I wasn't outwardly crying like some of them were, but it was still, you know, inside. You can't hear and see this stuff without having it affect you.
2: So that that's fascinating to me. You're, you're saying that members of the jury would, when you were excused for lunch, for example, that some of them would be in tears, some of them would be...
3: Occasionally, not always, but, you know, there were some pretty tough days. And I think they were probably in tears before they left the courtroom. I couldn't really see, you know, there would be beside me down the row or whatever or in front of me with their backs to me. But by the time we got out of that courtroom, there were definitely some tears
2: interesting yeah
1: and i and i saw tears as well so they they continued in the back room then yeah.
3: there was one juror in particular that i'm concerned about she's very young and I, I really didn't think it was fair for her to have to go through that i don't think she was equipped for that kind of thing it's a lot to go through for somebody who doesn't have that kind of life experience but i think so you were know.
1: you were you were more concerned about the other jurors over you that says a lot about you so, so. you knew you could handle it but you weren't sure if the others could
0: when you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes, like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.
1: This is a question that, that the chat is asking, and I think it's a question I've heard again and again. So let's just visually, I saw a wide range of ages, ethnicities, but there were some things I, I couldn't see I've let the chat know that you are not Mormon. It's a question that people ask because this is a religious case in the sense that there is a religious motive involved. Right. Was Do you know if there was a variety of religions with all of the jurors there? That's a question in um, chat.
3: I could tell you out of the 18 people in there, I think I knew one of them was Mormon. The rest, I have no idea.
1: Yeah, Boise is often surprisingly diverse too, and people right. don't always Realize that when it comes to Boise, as someone that lived there. Yeah, I lived there and I reported there and it's a lot more diverse than people
3: realize. I talk about that a little bit in my book. And I came from a very Mormon part of Idaho and very small town, very isolated town. And it was kind of dysfunctionally Mormon in my opinion because it was so isolated (laughs) and controlled everything. And it was hard for me to be there do business there and stuff. So coming to Boise has been kind of healing for me in that way, I
1: think. Thank you for sharing that. Go ahead, John. Did you want to follow? I know that you had some questions you really wanted asked.
2: Uh, You know, in talking about the emotional impact of the trial on the jurors, I think I wanted, I was thinking of an important question to follow that up with would be what were the most emotional moments during the trial for you? Are Are those things that you would be willing to talk about?
3: yeah um for me personally leading up to and finding the bodies it was kind of for me like um if you're watching a horror movie or something you know it's leading up to this um you know it's coming but um, i didn't know what things happened to get to that point right so i'm watching it all or hearing it all in court through the witnesses and everything what led up to all that and then we get to the point where the, I, I think listening to um, Detective Hermosillo and some others talk about that day, that was probably the hardest thing for me to think about. That that really made me start to think about the living victims as much as anything else. And by living victims, I mean the police, um, everybody involved, not just the family and people who were close, but people who got close over time got really involved in this. And, some extremely dedicated people, I think, that really stuck to this and followed it through. I, th- I think that was probably the hardest thing for me to deal with: is just thinking about those people. Not that I mean, the the victims who were murdered—that's the worst thing. But they were gone, and these other people were still living and suffering.
2: Were there any specific people or specific test testimony that you found? particularly compelling or more emotional?
3: The, the, the really strange thing for me it turned out to be that all of the FBI, the detectives, all the professional people, the medical examiners, all of their testimony wasn't didn't turn out to be as important as all of Lori's flaky friends and, and the prepper people and all that. Because the, the cops, I 100% believed what they said. They were extremely believable. They had proof to back up everything that they said. I had no question with any of that. But what it came down to was some of these other people in their testimony, that had to be important in the case. It had to actually make my mind up whether she did this or not, more than anything, because it was all circumstantial. So yes, you have this proof, that proof, and that proof, but none of that actually proves that Lori was behind it all. But the testimony of some other witnesses, Zulema, Audrey, and you know, people like that, that turned out to be, those were the important witnesses for me.
2: Yeah, interesting. Important could you be could you go a little further with that thought? Important in, in what way specifically?
3: Well, because the the police and all their technical stuff that they did and ways that they proved what happened, they didn't really prove that Lori was behind it, right? Because she wasn't actually at the murder scenes on any of those murders. It was, she conspired to commit murder, which is murder in Idaho. So those things didn't prove it, but what did prove it was, um, I can't think of offhand the specific things that were said by people like Zulema, but taken as a whole, it was enough to convince me that for sure she was behind this. She caused this. She did this
2: gotcha that's
3: you know that really took a while to dawn on me that that's how the way I was going with you know sitting in court but by the time it was all over and I was sitting there thinking about all this stuff I realized wow you know these people that I was like I couldn't take anything they said very seriously it turns out that their testimony is what proved to me that she was guilty
2: did you so sometimes this group has been referred to as a cult. Did you, did you start seeing it that way, or how, how did you see this group?
3: You know, I was, at the time, sitting in court. I couldn't tell you that I saw it any particular way, because there was so much that I didn't know. Now, for sure, I see it as a cult. Okay. But I think it's part of a bigger cult, in fact, too.
1: That uh, I'm sorry to jump in here, but that leads me to ask a question. One of the things you said the first time we met Tom um, in our interview at the sentencing you did say you you weren't sure if Lori really believed it, a- and maybe I'm jumping ahead, but I'm curious what you think now. <laughs>
3: I kind of have that question for you guys actually. (laughs) Okay.
1: Well, I jumped ahead then. We'll ask it. We'll ask that in a minute. That's okay. Go ahead, John.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. So I mean you're you're really describing sort of two different versions of this trial. There's the the technical element Uh, with law enforcement and detectives and all that kind of stuff and timelines. And then there's more of the I don't. Let's call it the emotional element of group members, or let's call them cult members, and how they work together, and how they their belief system. And it sounds to me like that second component may have been a little more influential.
3: Well, it was because, like I said, I I believed everything the police said. Yeah, I knew the bodies were buried in Chad's backyard. Everything they said was they proved it all, but it didn't necessarily prove that Lori was the one behind it all. But listening to all the other witnesses and just the, the accumulation of it all is what did it for me, I think. Not just listening to one particular one. There wasn't like this aha moment where a witness said something and I went, oh, that's it. It was just all the evidence put together.
2: Well, and on that issue, what did you think the most compelling pieces of evidence were? Is that something you've thought about since...
3: Um, Not really. I haven't thought about it that much, but I think um, some of it, you know, they brought the rifle into the courtroom, the one that was supposedly used to shoot at Tammy. That didn't affect me much because, to me, they didn't really prove that that was a rifle. Um, I think they were trying to impress us with the rifle. Okay. But I, I did think that the prosecution was pretty believable in pretty much everything else they said and did.
2: Yeah, what on that issue? What what did you think the prosecution did the best, or what it, what did the prosecution do well
3: with? You know, I think they were so sure of themselves. Okay, I, I really think that was a lot of it. But it, it it wasn't just that. I mean, their their evidence that they presented, and they you know a lot of times it was monotonous. They presented it over and over in different ways. They spent more time than I needed on a lot of things, but I understood why they needed to do that. But the, they were pretty convincing as far as this is the evidence that we have that these kids were murdered. It just didn't all necessarily leave quite up to Lori without the testimony of their other witnesses. They were still their witnesses. They were all their witnesses. Right. But just from the, prosecutor, from the police, detectives, FBI, all those.
2: And, and I, I guess I would ask you, I should ask you if I'm asking about the prosecution, what what did you believe that the defense did well with?
3: You know, I think they did well to give her the opportunity to have her day in court. That's, that's what she gets, right? She's guaranteed her day in court. And I think they did their best. I don't think they did. There wasn't much they could do. So I couldn't really say, well, they did this really well or that really well because there, there wasn't much they could do. They, they tried to cross-examine witnesses. I think the prosecution preempted a lot of their questions. That's that's one thing, the question you asked me before, that the prosecution did really well. When they called a witness to the stand and questioned that witness, they asked the question that they thought the defense was going to ask them also, before the defense could get to that. So by the time the defense stood up and came to cross examine, there wasn't a lot they could ask. I think their hands were, were really, really tied. I think some some by Lori. They they were and also by the fact that they couldn't um, insanity is not a defense in Idaho, so they couldn't right. even, uh, they couldn't even talk about it. I think it's a lot in court. So
2: yeah, on that issue, by the way, and obviously, so that that's getting in a little bit into my area. Do you feel like it would have been more compelling if they brought in some mental health issues or evidence around mental health?
3: I think they could have made a compelling argument in the defense that she was crazy. I mean, if. If it were a state that had that as a defense, I, I don't know if I could have convicted her because I think she's pretty crazy. See what oh, happened, okay. right?
1: You were shocked by her uh statement at sentencing. Because you didn't you didn't understand sort of how deep this went, belief wise, right? Because you hadn't you'd never heard from her at trial until the I,
3: sentence. I'd never heard her speak before until that moment. So yeah, that was that was really something I couldn't believe. I was offended by a lot of what she said and i think a lot of other people were too i think she tried to compare us all to her by saying you know who would throw the first stone or yeah that, that didn't go too well and I'm, I'm sure the detectives and everybody else in that room were pretty upset by that one too but and she went on to say some pretty weird things
2: <laughs> yeah
3: and, and you know I, so at that point i'm really questioning like okay she's either crazy or she's making herself sound crazy <laughs> but why would she do that at this point? She's got that the game now. You know, she'd talk like that in court. Maybe she would seem kind of crazy, and we might have that wasn't a defense anyway. But
2: right, or maybe maybe she's setting up something for an appeal.
3: Yeah, right, right.
2: So when when you when you talk about the defense uh, that way, Tom, it it almost sounds like you're saying that the the defense really sort of had a bad hand. You use the hand. Word by the way, not in that context, but yeah. uh, they, they were kind of belted, you know, they were dealt a, a bad hand. Um, y- when you say that, I, you know, it makes me wonder at what point during this trial did you sort of feel like the outcome would be clear? Were you, were you experiencing that fairly early, or do you did you kind of reserve judgment until the
3: end? I, I reserved judgment till the end, I was trying to, you know, be a good juror and be fair. You know, my, my, I guess on the surface feeling about it all was she's guilty and she needs to go down um, pretty early on, but I was still trying not to let myself think that way or feel that way and, you know, I would have been able to if they had come up with any kind of defense that made sense to me in, in spite of all of the, everything that was against her. If, if I didn't think she was guilty, I would say she was not guilty. <laughs> But there was not really any question, you know, at least halfway through the trial, I would say.
2: When you think about it now, is the do you believe that there there uh, there could have been a defense that would have worked more in her favor? I mean, is is there something that?
3: No, I don't. How can you? How could anybody defend her? I think <laughs> those guys. You know, so that was one of my questions coming out of this, and okay. I, looked, I looked into them, and. They're very qualified defenders with a, a really good past. They've got a lot of yeah. experience. She was well She was well represented there. I just think there wasn't a whole lot they could do. I was really surprised when they didn't call any witnesses. But looking back on it, I, who would they have called?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think they they did a very good job given what they had. I agree. I do, I do too. Do you? So you you mentioned you were at sentencing. Do you think this sentence was just? Do you think it was fair?
3: Yeah, that was interesting because um when Judge Boyce started speaking, as he was leading up to his actual sentencing at the end, he had me kind of nervous. I was, you know, he was sounding like he might go easy on her, talking about her past and how exemplary it was, and made me start to think, "Oh man, he's going to find a way to go light on her." And I didn't know, but that didn't happen. Obviously, the sentence was everything that I was hoping for at that point. I was hoping that there was no way she was ever going to see the light of day. Okay. Good.
2: What about, did you, did you have thoughts about, you know, even though the death penalty was taken off the table, did you have any thoughts about that?
3: Yeah. So I've had a lot of thoughts about that. Even okay. though I was not confronted with that outright, I was confronted with that in my own mind. Like, okay. And well, how would I have felt about that? So yeah, i thought a lot about that.
2: Could you talk a little bit about your...
3: I think... Yeah, I think the people in the Chad Daybell trial are going to struggle with that. The, the jurors are going to struggle with that more than they realize. Because by the time this trial was over, I kind of thought, well, you know, I hope, I wish she could have gotten the death penalty. I wish there could have been more justice there. But then I had to really think about that. Like, what is more just for her? Is it more just for her to? Um, and I, I talk a lot about this in my book, actually. There's like a whole big, long chapter on this. I, I did think a lot about it but is 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 it better for her to spend life in prison and maybe at some point she'll be confronted with what she did maybe reality will sink in and she'll have to deal with that or if she had been given a death sentence and it, her death was imminent would that have been more just would that have caused her to come to terms with it sooner maybe to ask forgiveness maybe not to us but to god or whatever to, I don't know. It's a tough
2: one. Yeah. Well, now, now I want to read your book. So,
1: <laughs> which many people are asking about your book in chat. So, will you share the title one t- uh, one more time? It sounds it sounds like YouTube might be blocking the title of your book when people oh. write it in chat. It could okay. it could just be one oh. of the words in it. Okay. Uh, so will you share the title of your book and explain to people that it's not available yet? We'll we'll share why. But yes, what is the title? Oh, for?
3: it's money, power, and sex the Lori Vallow Daybell bell trial by juror number 18. And it, it won't be released until the Chad Daybell trial, until there's either um, a verdict or a plea agreement in that trial. So probably around the end of May, that's what I'm hoping it'll be available.
1: Okay. and And I want to ask you why you chose to go to the sentencing, because you did not need to go there. It, it is also, people don't realize this, but Rexburg is, despite being in the same state as Boise, hours away from each other. And you went there with several other
3: jurors. Yeah, there were three three others there. Um, it was really important for me to see it through. It, it was important enough, my grandson was born that night, and I knew he was due to be born that night, um, the night of the sentencing, and I wouldn't be there. But... I I needed to be there. And I'm so glad that I went because some things happened to me there that I wasn't expecting. So I drove into Rexburg, I drove out to, I had to drive by the Daybell property. And when I drove by there, I was, I sat there, I pulled out, there's a little turnout there. I pulled out by myself, there was nobody else out there. And I just kind of looked over. I knew the property really well from seeing the pictures in court of of where the. Sites were and everything, so I could look out and I could see where Tylie had been buried and I could see where JJ had been buried, and all I could imagine Chad parked out front and all the things that went on there. And it was kind of a somber experience for me. And you know, I sat there for a while and then I drove off. And then I you know, I went to the hotel and ran into two of my fellow jurors there. And they were disappointed that I had been out there and they wanted to go out there, but they wanted me to come with them, they didn't want to go out by themselves. so. Uh, I, you know, I really didn't want to go back out there, but I went back out there. And I'm so glad that I did because this time um, the turnout that I had parked in by myself earlier was full of people. And media was there, and they'd made a little monument to Tylee and JJ there. And um, Kay and Larry were there. And I had talked to them on the phone prior a couple of times and i kind of stood there and just stood back for a while but then i thought i would go introduce myself and i was kind of nervous to do that but i I wanted to i just felt compelled to so i did and they immediately pulled me in and hugged me and thanked me and just made me feel so good those those people who have been through so much were concerned about me you know i'm a complete stranger to the thing it doesn't affect me personally really not like it does to them and so that really meant a lot to me and then i got to meet you Lauren and, and everybody else after that. And so turned out to be a really good thing. Now I know why I went, but I didn't know why I was going. Before I, went. <laughs> I just felt like I had to.
1: Yes. And I understand that the being present uh, now that we've learned that Chad's trial will be live streamed. We've considered staying home and watching it here, but th- I understand exactly what you're saying. There's a part of being there. That's really important to be able to experience something. And so I, I certainly think that i'll be attending some yep. if not all of chad's trial now and i hope to to see you there
3: oh you will Yep, i'll come see you whenever, whenever you're there i'm not going to go watch the whole thing or anything but i'll okay. be i'll be following it pretty closely on tv because i plan to do a follow-up bug on that trial because yeah. let me sh-
1: yeah let me share a little bit about uh, uh tom's book that i know about uh so that so you guys can hear this. And by the way, we've got a big show tonight because Tom has questions for Dr. John too. So stick with us, everyone. But there was one moment, it was after the sentencing. I think it was that evening. I remember I reached out to you because the producers for News Nation wanted to talk to you. And you were going. On, and we were all in the same hotel and we were all in the lobby together. I mean, I, I don't know if I should be naming all names because some people probably want their privacy there, but many of us, right? Many of us were- There, Uh, many, yeah, and many people affected by this case. And Justin Lum and I are sitting there chatting, and we're looking over at you far in the corner at the other table, talking with Detective Hermosillo and interviewing him. And you had your pad of paper out and you were taking notes. And Justin was like, dude, how'd he, how'd he (laughs) How'd he get to do that? And I know exactly why you did. You served, in. you did not want to do this. You did this. You sat through this, and uh, you. I know that that trip to Rexburg. You interviewed Detective hermesio You interviewed the prosecution. You have many, many interviews that that many do not have, including reporters.
3: Night and in
1: yes, yes, yeah. You had us going, "What the heck?" Over there in the corner. Uh, no, we were we were excited, and and. Honor. It, oh, it was, was touching. It was touching to see him talking to you, a okay. juror number eighteen. Maybe and another one.
3: Just made me feel good. Was-
1: yeah, but that is also why your book cannot be released until after right. Chad's yeah. verdict, and I think that's what we need to explain here. The draft is done, but it, because of the sensitive interviews you have, it simply cannot be released.
3: I just finished the manuscript, and I have a publisher, and so it's going into editing right now. Yeah, there's some things I'd like to tell you about it, but I'm not sure if I'm supposed to yet. So I'll just wait, I guess. Right.
1: You just wait. You just yeah. wait.
3: But Well, I
2: have to jump in here. You you keep mentioning Chad, so yes. I can't miss this moment. There was a lot of evidence presented that involved Chad. Yeah. And I have to ask you what your impressions of Chad Daybell were when you were listening to all the evidence. And, you know, did did you formulate... Any opinions on Chad and, and what the evidence might mean for him?
3: Yeah. So sitting through the trial, I was questioning that exact thing. I, I wasn't okay. sure. I have definite opinions now. But at the time, you're asking how I felt during the trial, I think. And at that time, I I wasn't sure. I mean, I, I were they both just as guilty? I mean, as far as I was concerned, Lori had let her kids be killed at the very mm-hmm. least, right? So to me, that's her mother. She's guilty. So was Laurie just guilty of following along with him? Was he the mastermind behind it all? Was she the mastermind behind it all? Or did they come together in this horrific chance thing where two really miserable human beings come together and do horrible things? Were they both capable of it before they met each other? I don't know. I didn't know at the time.
2: Did you, did you feel like some of the evidence presented that involved Chad was was fairly damning to him?
3: Yes. So yeah. We, his conversation, be, yeah. His conversation with the uh crematorium, I guess, in uh Arizona. Yeah, that was, all, was pretty
1: bad. The funeral home. We played that on our channel yesterday, yeah, yes. Chad right? calling the funeral home after Charles's death.
3: Yeah, that was really something. Chad DeBall or whatever.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's it's I guess it's now become a part of his best hits. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, he came up with all these zombie names and he couldn't came, come up with a name for himself rather than Chad DeBell.
3: Sorry. I have a hard time, even with people like Chad, to be critical, especially, you know, with the whole audience watching. But that guy's a moron. He's, he's not very smart.
2: <laughs> Better you saying it than us. Yeah, that, that wouldn't... That's This is exactly why we had you on, because we can't say stuff like that. Yeah, and, as uh, and stay professional. Right.
3: right.
1: Rebecca Randall gave us a good one too. Chad Dubbell, the ball. <laughs>
3: yeah. Well, what's what's your professional word for uh, moron then Dr. John?
2: <laughs> it's not a diagnosis in the DSM, but it's it's a word I've heard a lot in this case. So, but I think you're the first person we've had on that said that. So,
3: I I'll, I'll accept it.
2: I'll accept it as your diagnosis.
3: Yeah, there you go. The layman's diagnosis, it's the best word I can come up
1: with. Low, low IQ. <laughs> that'll, be,
2: that'll be your diagnosis in the book. And by the way, I should mention about the book that the profits are going to be donated to a nonprofit organization called Hope House. Could you could you tell us a little bit about Hope House, please? Tom? Yeah,
3: so I spent a lot of my time since the trial looking for the right uh, organization to donate money to if I'm fortunate enough to you know, write a good enough book and actually make some money, the profits are gonna go to the Hope House. And the Hope House is it's in Marsing, Idaho, small town just outside of Boise and right on the Snake River. They take in children who most of the children have been adopted and some of them were adopted from outside of the United States and came here as part of their adoption. And the families for whatever reason didn't follow through, couldn't couldn't hang on to the kids. The adoption didn't work out. So the You know, they're here in this country with nowhere to go. Parents don't want them anymore. Their adoptive parents don't want them anymore. And so the Hope House takes them in. And we got to meet some of the kids and do a tour of the place and meet the directors, Donna and Ron. And they're awesome. And they do everything good there. And I'm really happy to have found them. I think it's it's just the right place, just what I was looking for, because they help kids who otherwise could be in some serious danger.
2: Yeah, that's great. Thank you. I, I noticed that Kay just Kay Woodcock just jump on. So thanks for joining us, Kay. We're happy
3: to have you here tonight. Thank you.
1: Kay says hello everyone, John, Lauren, and a special hello to you, Tom.
3: Hello, Kay. Very nice to hear from you. Glad you're listening.
2: So let me. I'm going to shift gears a little bit here because I know you you want to ask me a few questions. I guess
3: I answer. Um,
2: okay, so I'm, I'm going to put you on the hot seat here for a second, yeah. though. So. I'm glad I asked you about the vetting process when you were being considered as a juror early on. You said that the only thing you knew about this case was that it was a sordid and sad case. And that was one of the reasons you didn't want to get involved or to follow it. You know, it strikes me that if that's how you felt before, and then you obviously became a juror, that I'm I'm, I'm imagining or, or guessing that that this trial probably had a big impact on you in some way. Um, Could you talk about that a little bit?
3: Yeah. More than I want to admit to myself, I think. Okay. Uh, More than I was expecting it to. I knew it was going to be hard when I found out what it was. My wife says I've I've changed. There's something different about me. She can't quite explain what it is, but I feel it. You know, there's something a little bit different. It's not that I've like lost hope in humanity or anything like that. I. I think the opposite is actually true because she was the only bad player in that room and so many good people were there that by the time the trial was over and I'd been through sentencing and I'd been associated with all the people that I got associated with, I think I had a better feeling about our justice system, about the media, uh, everybody involved besides her. So it wasn't so much that as maybe it's just being confronted with that. It just hurts something inside of you. It just Kind of breaks something, maybe. I don't know quite how to say it. Not broken, but a little part. Maybe it's kind of taken away. I can imagine how people like K, you know, people so close to this. Something huge has to be broken. Well, I guess does that answer your question?
2: Yeah. uh, Yes, it does. Thank you for for being so open about that. It it seems to me that perhaps I'm just – this is – I'm interpreting here, but I guess that's what I do as a psychologist. But, um, it sounds like maybe that, that initial sadness you talked about, maybe that, maybe that grew a little bit. There was some real sadness from being a part of this process. And and maybe that's true of all of us that
3: yeah have it followed this case. From nothing else. And, and the court offered counseling for jurors. And I know there are some jurors that are taking advantage of that. I have not, i I think, my idea once I decided to do this book, I thought, you know, this is what's gonna kind of heal me and get me through all this. And and it has in a lot of ways, but I'm still kind of considering it. I might take advantage of some counseling at some point.
2: Okay. Yeah. And so I guess the the last thing I would ask you is, you know, do you do you feel like I guess you've kind of answered this in various ways, but any takeaways for us? Any any kind of thoughts about not only how it's impacted you, but just Thoughts in general about this case? or
3: A lot of takeaways. Okay. Uh, The main, I mentioned before, but the main, probably more than once, but the main one was, I was actually pretty proud, very proud of how the justice system worked. The people within the justice system, both, both teams, the prosecution and the defense, and looking into them since the trial has been over, you know, my opinion of them in court was correct. They are. Top notch at what they do, top of their game, good people, you know, everybody involved. I got to when the sentencing was over, we got invited into the judges' chambers afterwards, which I was not expecting. So I got to spend about forty five minutes with Judge Boyce and his his clerk and his wife. I really appreciated that. That was you know, that was a privilege. And we've been isolated from him the whole time. we weren't allowed to speak, of course, or have any contact at all during the trial. So that was really nice. And there was just a lot of that kind of thing. A lot of concern for the jurors that really came through showed and made us feel appreciated. So that was my main takeaway. You know, I, I guess it's kind of opened my eyes to a lot of the bad things going on and then doing a lot of the research for the book and delving in deeper with a lot of things, listening to you guys' podcast and some other ones, realizing that there's there's quite a lot of bad things going on in the world, you know. I, I guess my eyes have been kind of opened up. I, I guess I kind of always knew it, but I just didn't pay attention to it as much in the past, so didn't really deal with it. Yeah, a little bit of that. Yeah.
2: Okay. I'm I'm not sure that's a great takeaway, but but I but I hear you.
1: Yeah. Did you pay attention to? crime stories at all before being a juror? I know that during, you know, you didn't know about this one, but was that something you paid attention to?
3: You know, I like to read and, you know, I've read books like Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, but these were, you know, crimes from way back in the past, whatever. Um, I like to read about Dillinger and, you know, all the bad guys during the depression and things like that. So yeah, I kind of, I guess, but, but not like uh, people who are in the crime world nowadays, you know, it's it's a big thing now. True crime and everything that's going on currently, I never was involved in any of that or interested in any of that until this.
1: Until this, that, that, that was my next question, is John has the belief that really delving into crime and true crime really is touching upon a part of humanity that many people mm-hmm. maybe don't always explore and it can teach us about humanity in a, in a unique way sometimes a dark way but yeah. to to see both and so I was curious if if the until now sort of answered my question if it has sparked your mind a little bit to understand crime and how the unfathomable can happen sometimes
3: right yeah and you know doing my research into this I come across other things and get Interested in other things that are going on, I I found out that a guy that I used to know, he was a county sheriff, and he he had written a book. I didn't know. I had I haven't had contact with this guy for like thirty years, but I found out he, he wrote a book about some of his experiences as a sheriff, and so I got into reading that and just things I would have never found otherwise, I guess. And and mostly though, um, as it relates to the book I'm writing, so. I don't have a lot of time to dig into other crimes that are going on, but if it has something, anything to do with this, or it can help me understand in any way what happened in this case, then I'm interested in that. So I've I've been kind of following, reading, whatever stuff stuff about somehow relates. Yes, that, as
1: S.L. Conley just wrote here, after true crime touched my family, it changed the way I parent. It's always in the back of my yeah,
3: mind. it does. It makes you think a lot more, for sure. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> John, yeah. maybe that's
1: maybe that's one of your first questions for John. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I... I Right, it's a, that's a big question. So you you become more interested in true crime, but mm-hmm. I, I don't suspect that you're binge-watching Netflix true crime documentaries either.
3: No, only the one that had to do with this case. Okay. Yeah,
2: that gotcha. this case. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So th- those are pretty much the questions I had. If, if you want to.
1: Well, Patty G is asking what remaining unanswered questions does Tom have? And maybe that's a great segue right there.
3: All right. You guys ready?
2: <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm sitting down, but.
3: Yeah. My questions are not simple. I mean, these these are things that I've struggled with and have not been able to answer for myself. Okay. I'm hoping, Dr. John, that you can help me with this. And also, Lauren, this first one, especially, I'll just, I'll ask, I'll start to ask the question. We'll see how it goes. I'm wondering how does Mormonism transfer to Mormon fundamentalism and just religious fanaticism? And I ask that not just because of the this particular trial, but because of all the things that I've learned that are going on that have been going on in southern Utah, northern Arizona, the preparing of people, the vow, all those kind of things. So I've gotten kind of curious about that. What leads us to to that?
1: Well, first off, I'll say I, I might turn the basis of this question actually over to John, surprisingly, because if you ask me, I I might give you an eight hour podcast, like the one I did over on Mormon stories and tell you all about it, how it, how it can shift. But I actually consider your question more of a psychological one in how can beliefs, because I think the question you're asking is the question that lingers, has lingered with me for the past four years. I'm, I'm working on a book proposal about that very question right now. Right. And a, a lot of that, a lot of my questions, John really helped me with them. At what point does a belief become a delusion? How does the religion create the fringe? I guess I could ask specific, I could answer a specific question about Mormonism, certainly, oh. or specific parts about that.
3: Well, and that's the thing, because I'm not Mormon. And I, I actually write some about this in my book. I have a lot of friends that are Mormon. And I respect them and I respect their religion. And I, and I don't want to be critical of, of that. But I think the question needs to be asked. How will we get from the, like the conventional Mormon church to people that are out there just kind of taking a fanatical view of it all. Kind of going yeah. off the fringe.
1: Well, I'll answer the Mormon aspect. And then, John, I think a broad answer about religion would be great coming from you. As far as the LDS religion goes, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I, I use the term Mormon as a, as a movement. It starts with Joseph Smith, but there are breakoff groups of Mormonism, and the mainstream Mormon church is called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The LDS church, that is what Lori and Chad belong to. I think what we've seen again and again and again when it comes to the LDS church and Mormonism that it was founded with a man who was a prophet who saw God and Jesus Christ and who then became a prophet. Of course, many religions do start with a magical sort of mystical moment like that. I don't know if Mormonism is any different, but in the 1800s, this origin story, and John is always teaching me about how important origin stories are and why they are sometimes are replayed again and again. I think generational generational things that happen again and again and again throughout a family, origin stories matter. And that origin story is something that we see repeated again and again, that someone is going to claim that they speak for God, that they had a vision. Chad claimed to speak for God. They had missions. He had a vision. The book Visions of Glory that I've been delving deep into over on Mormon Stories is with John DeLynne and who has really that that book has inspired Tim Ballard who is also LDS and it has it has inspired Jody Hildebrandt who is also LDS what all of these people have in common i'm seeing is is a belief in being a superior being that they are called of god that they have had visions and that they have a mission and a purpose and they they are in charge of leading people through the second coming of uh, through christ all three of those people If you look at Warren Jeffs, he was FLDS, not LDS, but in that broad range of Mormonism, a breakoff group. He too took on that mantle of being a prophet. And I think that where we see issues with religion is this ability for people to not just say that they're a prophet, but for people to believe that the people that say it, that they believe them and follow them. But as far as the first question you asked me, that's broad question about how does something religious, and, and that's very beautiful to many people, become something so sinister, I think is more of John.
3: Husband, actually. I should have framed yeah. it more that way.
1: It's not meant- and that's what I've been asking for four and a half years. Yeah. So, John.
2: <laughs> so, right. So, you want, you want this answer in a minute. Um, so, <laughs> my... My answer, first of all, my answer would be more in terms of beliefs and not religion. I I would take religion, extreme religious beliefs to be a subset of belief. So I think my, my broader answer will just be in terms of belief. And part of the question is, how do you radicalize someone? And I think the short answer, the best way to radicalize someone is through grievance. So if you take certain grievances... And you add stress and you add fear and you add, if you, if you start amplifying those grievances, then beliefs are more apt to become more extreme. And you're more likely to find people believing in say conspiracies or the paranormal or that kind of stuff. Um, But I think you like in this particular case, I think you have to go back to childhood issues and you're looking at like Lori, for example, was raised in a family that, That had fairly extreme beliefs to begin with, and then those beliefs become reinforced. And there's there's certain personality variables that come into play too, such things as resilience. So somebody that's less resilient is more likely to move in extreme direction. Somebody who there's a there's something called the five factor model of personality, and one of those factors that's relevant to belief is called openness to experience. So people that are low on that variable tend to move more towards extremism too, because they're not, they're not curious. They're not open to new experiences and to learning from those experiences. So there's a number of variables here, I think. So family culture, these personality variables like openness to experience. Typically people that end up with more extreme beliefs, they might be a little more fantasy prone. So in this particular case, you know, people are seeing angels and talking to Jesus. And, you know, that involves a certain level of fantasy proneness that you wouldn't see in somebody that's a little more grounded. So th- those are just some, I mean, you know, we could, some, we could, we could come on here and do probably the oh. next, you know, five hours yeah, talking about this, but but that that would just be kind of my quick.
3: Okay. So as far as followers of a fanatic go, what, what would you say they're missing in their lives that lets them believe in somebody like Chad or, or any of these? Warren Jeffs.
2: Yeah, so you're you're talking specifically about Lori here.
3: Well, I'm just wondering in general, actually, what what somebody's missing in their lives to make them vulnerable to become a follower of somebody who has fanatical beliefs. Maybe I'm getting too far off the track. I don't know.
2: So the the research on cult, there's not a huge amount of research on cults, but some of the research on cults shows that that typically people that move more towards cults or become involved in cults usually they're oftentimes they're experiencing some event in their life, some type of trauma or some type of upheaval in their life that gets them questioning who they are and what they should be doing. And so a lot of the way I think of it is a lot of times you have, let's say a rupture in their life, whatever that is. And that creates a bit of a void. And the goal is to try to fill that void with something meaningful that gives them a sense of belonging and purpose. So I think that sense of belonging and purpose are really what drive cults or joining cults, and and oftentimes that's created by something traumatic or some type of rupture or questioning of one's life path or something along those
3: lines. I love the way you explain things. It really kind of clears. You, you say it in a way that makes it clear. <laughs> Thank you. A good way of doing that. I mean, I've been struggling with that question, really, and kind of answered it. So.
2: Thank you. Yeah. That's a, it's a, that's a big question. It's a tough question.
3: Yeah, I know. Do you think that the book, you mentioned visions of glory, Lauren, do you think that that book played a big role, like a huge role in what Chad and Laurie ended up doing?
1: I do. I think that the book played a huge role. They were, they were lovers of the book, but I think the book, maybe I should frame it this way. Cause I've been thinking a lot about this actually, you how do. much influence the visions of glory book had And I did a crash course on the Daybell case, um, sort of explaining some basic beliefs. And I brought up Mike Stroud and I brought up Denver Snuffer and some other influential people in the Daybell case. But when it comes down to it, all of these people were also feeding on one another. So so you take a group of people with some fringe beliefs and some extreme beliefs And they're all collecting from one another. And so at what point does this book come in? Visions of Glory isn't a 100% its own creative work of art. We've learned that even that book copied some things from some other places. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: But this book had such a cult following and still does. And I think that one reason is the secrecy of Spencer and who he is. We know that's Tom Harrison and that Spencer was this behind the scenes sort of wizard of Oz guru that people would know of him. Uh, there was this reverence with the book, the apostolic So, so Tom Harrison, AKA Spencer in the book has an apostolic friend that he keeps referring to in the book, that meaning an apostle sort of okaying this book. There's some mystery and sure. some excitement there. And the belief that this book is scripture took all of their fringe beliefs to the extreme. It bottled them up with a nice ribbon and said, here is your book. Here's your, here's your scripture. And then to know that Tom Harrison had met with them, I've learned and that they really, there was a lot of reverence around him. And I think just, Seen Lori reading at poolside. You probably didn't even notice that when yeah, I was I noticing it, it. I, or
3: did you? I remember uh, specifically sitting there and seeing the video they showed us of her getting served, and I thought, oh, she's got a religious book. Well, that stands stand to <laughs> read it. but that's all I thought at the time, and I didn't know what it was. I still haven't read it, but I didn't know what it was, and it had all these connections with all these people that are involved in all this weird stuff.
1: Did you watch our deep dive on that book, Mormon Stories? Anyway, yes, it's long. To- Yeah, Yeah, it's long. It's long. John hasn't even seen the whole thing. He's like, dude, (laughs) (laughs) eight hours.
3: These questions (laughs) are, though. I mean, there are several hard questions and answers. They're not easily answered. Right. And to me, I guess my biggest question coming out of it was how. Not why does a mother kill her children. That was easy. How does she do it? How do you get yourself in a frame of mind to be able to do that? And I think listening to you guys a lot has kind of helped me Figure that out.
1: What in particular? I know you're the one asking questions, but what in particular in our podcast that has helped you the most?
3: Not one thing. Uh, accumulation of things, like everything else in this case. There's not one thing, like an aha moment or whatever. It's just everything adds up to. You know, you talked about Dr. John talked about um, Lori's childhood or her family, all that stuff, the narcissism aspect of all of that, and this kind of all adds up. Still doesn't quite answer it. I don't think it can possibly be answered to where you get to that point where you murder your children, but you can kind of, on an academic level, I guess, maybe make some sense of it. Yeah,
2: I I think that's a good point. I think that in these types of cases, we can come up with reasonable explanations, but I think there's always a little bit of mystery. Yeah. That, That why human beings do exactly what they do is always going to have an unknown variable. And there's always going to be a certain amount of mystery. And in the end, none of us are going to be exactly right. And that's why, you know, that's one of the reasons we do this is because we want to have a dialogue with our audience and our community and the gems. And and that dialogue is so important. I'll get, you know, Lauren jokes that after every show, people will write to me and say, I disagree with you. You're completely wrong. And I think that's great because it, it means that we're getting people thinking about these cases and alternative points of view and that dialogue is important
3: yeah i think a lot of people have asked why there's a lot i've read there's books there's all kinds of stuff why did you do this yeah that's hard to figure out but how you get to that point where you can do it is tough so the next big question that i have for you guys has to do with kylie and like i told you before we came on it's you know we're getting into the dark darkest me what was the darkest part of all this. Okay. So a trigger warning maybe for yeah, anyone yeah, a Trigger warning. It's, it's tough. Um, but listening and watching her statement in court that she gave to the police after Charles was killed brought the question to my mind how her reaction was so bizarre. And I wasn't at that point, I wasn't even really thinking that much about Lori. I was looking at Tylee going how is it this girl? I mean, All that I know now, Charles was really nice to her. They had a good relationship. She didn't act like she was affected. Even if she didn't like the guy that he'd been killed, a 16-year-old kid would be, that would be a big deal. And she was just acting like it was nothing. And so that really raised the question in my mind about Tylee and what would make her do that. And so I started thinking about her relationship with her mother and I started asking myself, has Tylee, been manipulated by her mom her whole life? Is she afraid to do anything that her mom's not going to approve of? Does she know her mom's a killer and she's just lying for her mom? I had all these questions. And the biggest question I had about her and the one that's haunted me ever since the trial is did Tylee know she was in danger? Was she afraid of her mom growing up? Um, Did she know she might be murdered? There was that audio tape of her in the background When Lori was on the phone and Lori called her dark, and she said, "Not me, Mom. I'm not dark." And uh, just uh, you know, to think that maybe she knew that what was going to happen to her is a horrible thought. So I'm just wondering if you have anything, Doctor John, uh, any ideas about Kylie, and if she knew, she didn't know. What do you think?
2: Yeah that that the that incident you reference is is a frightening. It's a bone-chilling moment. I think it's a really frightening moment in this case, and it—that's—that's it, that's exactly the question I asked. She knows. I think she knows what happens when people are considered dark and labeled zombies. And here she is with her mother calling her a zombie. You know, it's—I don't know Tylee well enough to really answer that question in depth. What I can say is. I looked at the interview that she did with the police after Charles was murdered and we did a little bit of analysis of that on YouTube. It's, I think it's still posted somewhere, right, Lauren? And
1: yeah, that was never posted on our podcast, but John's assessment of Tylee's interview after Charles was killed is on our YouTube channel. And I, I'll try to find my,
2: it. My analysis of Tylee is that she's there's a lot of turmoil there psychologically. I think you see Tylee as I see Tylee as someone who is a bit passive aggressive. She's I I believe she was struggling with depression, and I don't I don't know how deep that goes, and I'm not trying to diagnose that, but there's signs of depression in Tylee a lot all over the place. And I think it could be very severe, but I don't know. You know, I I can't go too far with it. I wouldn't diagnose that unless I knew more about her, but let's just call it depression, broadly speaking. So I think you have you have someone who has potentially who has this deep depression. And I think a lot of that is is due to the fact that she feels somewhat crippled by her mother. Her mother was probably a bit overprotective and really didn't let her become that or didn't want her to become that independent, I think. Right. And, yeah. and so you you have this kind of overbearing mother. And yet Tylie is a very smart, intelligent, independent person who wants to express herself. And so you see this side of Tylie that's always pushing back. Mm. And I i think he I think he rebelled against Chad, for example. And I think he, you know, he told he she probably Tylee probably told her mother, Lori, what what she really felt and you know Melanie Gibb perceived her to be a rebel and not a kind child and you know you so you've got the side of Tylee that's trying to find her voice and that's really kind of fighting to have an identity and is pushing back um but uh, but but then her mother will you know she'll get sick and her mother will take her to the hospital and her mother will tell her you need me and I'm the one who's taking care of you and I'm rescuing you right so you've got this I've, you've got this tremendous turmoil I think with with Tylie and she's really kind of fighting to be herself and fighting to find her own identity and her mother is really trying to squash that at every turn and so I think that to me that seems to manifest or to present itself in terms of depression and when you when you look at the interview that Tylie did with police it, to me there's there's it seems that there's A lot of depression there. So to answer your question, I have a lot of respect for Tylee in the sense that she was a really smart, independent person who really was fighting for her autonomy and maybe for her life to some degree. But then there was a part of her that knew there were limits to what she could do. And I, I do think that in that moment, I think she may have known the awful truth. But like most children, you're probably not gonna to want to believe that your mother's capable of killing you. Right. So I, I think that probably shows itself through the depression. And I think at some level she had to she had to deny that, or you know, I like most of us, if if somebody told us that our parents were gonna kill us, I think most of us would want to question that.
3: That's a good point. Yeah. That that actually helps me deal with my thoughts about Tylee. The other, and this is kind of out there, but the other thing that helps me with it is the idea that possibly, and the same goes for JJ, maybe they had been drugged before they were murdered, so maybe they didn't actually know what was going on when it was happening.
1: And we can only hope. Yeah.
3: Yeah, the most horrible thing I can think of is a kid being murdered by the people who are supposed to take care of them.
1: The one thing I want to add about Tylee and that interview with Charles, I think one of the most profound moments besides the fact that she's, she's cracking every joint in her body as she sits there. Anxiety. She's wiping tears from her eyes. It's actually really interesting. She stops crying. She starts to cry and she stops it showing that emotion is being shut down in her, but she, I don't know if you know this Tom, but she starts humming a song and the song she is humming is from the song, from the Disney movie Moana. Did you know this? And it's, how far I'll go to mm-hmm. listen to the lyrics to the song. This is all you need to know about Kylie and her life. I've been staring at the edge of the water long as I can remember, never really knowing why I wish that I could be the perfect daughter, but I come back to the water, no matter how hard I try. Every turn I take, every trail I track, every path I make, every road leads back to the place I know where I cannot go, where I long to be. I know everybody on this island seems so happy. Everything is by design. I know everybody on this island has a role. So maybe I can roll with mine. I can lead with pride. I can make a strong. I will be satisfied if I play along. But the voice inside sings a different song. What is wrong with me? Wow. That is the song she is humming during that interview. That's crazy. I think that's that's what she was dealing with her whole life trying to play a role, trying to play along, trying to please her mother. I see a codependent relationship that she had. Her mother triangulated. I believe there might've been Munchausen by proxy with her sickness. Her mother made her dependent. I've also heard from people that when Tylee did have friends and she wanted to have friends, she would say, I can't go out. My mother says I'm too sick. Oh. And there was a lot of manipulation there.
3: you think Laura was really controlling?
1: I do, in a very manipulative way. Yeah. In a way that says only I will protect you. You right. need me. Everybody else is out to get you, but I always have your back. Yeah,
3: I listened yeah. to Doctor John's explanation. Um, I don't remember what it was called, but the you put the baby on the blanket and something that maybe yeah blanket her. training. Yeah, I, I thought a lot about that.
2: Yeah, that blanket training is. <laughs> blanket training is something else it's it's hard to imagine that people actually do it, but
3: yeah.
2: yeah if you if you want to abuse a child or or beat a child into submission without actually hitting them i I think sometimes they do hit them with the right the right with the wooden what is it they use lauren the wooden spoons right spoon? yeah. Oh,
3: yeah
2: I think sometimes the children are hit, but it's it's certainly a way of. Creating a very passive, traumatized child. Yeah. So
3: that, that helped. That simple explanation helped me a lot to understand that frame of mind. So, you want to move on to some easier questions? <laughs> it's so deep and, yeah.
2: You're yes, still, please. You're, you're making me sweat a little bit here, yeah. Tom.
3: They're still really deep. They're just not, you know, relative to that. These are easier ones. <laughs> do, you, do you think that Lori might have been capable of murder before she met Chad?
2: You know, we in our our last show uh, two weeks ago, we talked about that issue. There, we were from one of our sources informed us that there was a reasonably high probability that Lori may have been present when Joe Ryan, who was one of her ex husbands, that she may have been present when he was when he died.
3: She saw her at his last breath or something like that. Yeah, and then right uh, exactly, and then there's also her sister Lolly and her sister Stacy and
2: yeah there's well, right there's so many question marks
3: all these people died under strange circumstances. Do you think she actually believes that she talks to Jesus and dead people?
2: yep I do think she does i, think, I she's, think she does I think she's very literal and her religious beliefs are very literal and I think she's obviously very narrow minded and uh-huh. As right. as you as you heard during the sentences sentencing, you know Judge Boyce mentioned that one of the forensic people, one of the forensic psychologists, diagnosed her with uh, delusional disorder. So that would be that would be consistent with someone who may very well think they're talking to Jesus.
3: So, but if that's the case, do you think she'll ever come to terms with what she's done, or will she always just believe that? Jesus, okay.
2: That's yeah that's that's a question we ask all the time. Uh I don't I don't see any at this point I don't see any changes on the horizon. I think she'll continue to be in denial for quite a while. Um I, you know I think over time depending on the influences she, you know her influences in in prison you know I mean it, it's possible she may work through some of that denial but at the moment I don't I, it's pretty pretty entrenched.
1: here's 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 a little tidbit this is this is unknown information this is some tea as we say here a hidden true crime but it'll give you an example where her mind is now you know we all heard her refer to her eternal friend Tammy Daybell at the statement that that was a wild moment even for me even even me believing that she believes some of this wild stuff my mouth dropped
3: I just wondered how how Tammy's sister felt about hearing that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and and this, well, this is a bit of a trigger warning for any of Tammy's dear friends or family listening to this, that, you know, I've been curious about, you know, now that I know that Chad and Lori might be able to talk, I've been sort of curious and I, I reached out to some, these are good sources and what Lori is talking about behind bars these days is visiting with, her dear friend, Tammy Daybell. And that's what she's been talking about behind bars presently. Uh, so
3: in her mind, if Dr. John is right in her mind. She believes she's talking to Tammy Daybell and Tammy Daybell is her dear friend in heaven.
1: Yeah. Um, Despite being the mistress who conspired to.
3: So have if, her if, killed. if that's true, she probably really would welcome her death. She's got a firm belief. Yeah. In,
2: yeah, I mean, th- yeah, we we've, we've speculated on that, right? I I think well that that goes along with her belief that she believed that the world the apocalypse was going to occur in July July 20th, 2020, right? So in that sense because potentially because she had that firm belief in the apocalypse, I don't think she put as much emphasis on the, you know, the murders. Yeah, yeah right. You
3: know? But when those things don't happen, so yeah, how does that not blow it all up for these people? <laughs> <laughs> I just think, well, it's going to happen later. You to wrong, you're,
2: so. you're Tom. You're trying to see this from a rational standpoint. This is, we're not talking about. <laughs> we're not talking about the most rational people here. So it's a good question, but I I think you know that there's something we we talk about this a lot. There's something called cognitive dissonance, which is exactly what you're you're mentioning. Which you know when when evidence contradicts your beliefs. You you basically have two choices. One is you amend your belief or the other is you just distort the evidence. So, you know, th- these people distort the evidence so that they can live with it or they can still see themselves consistently or be- they can keep their beliefs. Yeah. So the way you distort the evidence is you say, well, my belief is correct, but you know, I just got the date a little wrong. I just read a few things incorrectly. Let's go tweak those. And then, you know, clearly the apocalypse is going to occur right. in 2024 or whatever it is. So essentially this cognitive dissonance allows people that believe, that set those types of dates to continue believing in the same thing because they just continue to distort yeah. the evidence.
3: That kind of it really explains why she thought she would get away with it all. She thought... July 20, 2020 is a big day. Yeah. Uh, And I I want
1: to point out something specific about the end of world beliefs that they have. I think that there's, if you think of it this way, some people, you know, tribulations in in most religions and the book of revelation talks about many, a lot of tribulations. And I think there's people that believe the end of the world is the end, you know, everything just blows up and that's it. And then there's other people I think that are thinking the end is where the many people die and the tribulations begin but they are left standing right. to then gather the remaining 144,000 so i think to put that into perspective too that the end of the world to them was where all of the tribulations were going to happen the natural disasters the famine right. the, and and the wicked were going to be killed but they would be standing with 144,000 of the most right. righteous yeah yeah exactly bingo
3: yeah
2: great crazy also by the way crazy is not a diagnosis either tom (laughs) no it's crazy crazy and moron are not valid (laughs) diagnoses but you know it's fine if you use those terms rather than me
1: Yeah. Or evil, Uh, crazy, moron, evil. All those, all those easy terms we just want to be able to throw out to make sense of something. They're not, they're not in the DSM.
3: unfortunately.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Although I should, I think you can, someone could make a compelling argument that maybe we should add crazy to the DSM, but we haven't gotten
3: that far yet. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Seems like a legitimate term to me. (laughs) So I wanted to ask you about the living victims, family members, the police who had to be at the exhumations and all that kind of stuff. Long-term, how do you think this is going to affect some of those people? Do you think some of them might be, have, have long-term problems with it? Or
2: You know, there's, there's something that in my, in my field we talk about in clinical psychology, but also I guess in forensic work, we talk about the idea of vicarious trauma. The idea is that by, just by being close to a case like this and in say, for example, with law enforcement, I mean, the, the people that actually were present when the bodies were found, for example, I mean, that that obviously is that's not vicarious. That's real. That's actual trauma. Yeah. And so I think the people that actually witnessed those types of things are, are probably I wouldn't be surprised to see if there's some residual trauma from those incidents or from their experiences but, but also people like yourself, you know that that participated on a jury and and really didn't know what you were getting yourself into. Um, and you're kind of forced to, to be in a cloistered situation for a while for you know, a long period of time. I think that can have a real impact. And you pointed that out, you talked about that a little bit in terms of some changes you've made and maybe being a little traumatized. So I, I think, you called them living victims. That the the living victims will will be deeply impacted by this.
3: They can't help but be. That's my thought. Yeah. What do you think about Alex? Is I'm, I'm thinking mostly him and Lori when they were kids growing up, their family. Do you do you think that they had a sexual relationship? I mean, I guess you have to either have knowledge of that or not. You guys know something I don't.
1: <laughs> well, I could probably talk yeah. more freely. Do you want me to just share my yeah. my non psychologist opinions? I think they probably possibly had a sexual relationship. I do. I think that there was this is this is my opinion. This is me and, and not John. I personally think that there was abuse in the household. And I think there might have been things that overstepped boundaries. Yeah. But perhaps it was even normal to them.
3: That's the conclusion I've been coming to also Alex is the wife that he had for a year. her description of what she saw when she met the family and then she ran is kind of telling I think.
2: yeah, the family has steadfastly denied that by the way, so I think I should point that out. I mean okay. it's there's do we have proof of that? No right okay does it does it seem like something untoward happened? During their childhood, yeah, probably. It, it certainly seems that way,
3: but... Well, how do you think you could have been convinced to actually be the the actual physical murderer?
2: I think there was a lot of codependency with Lori. People have... There's probably some history of dependency in that relationship. I guess the, the pop term would be codependency, but I think the term I would use would be deep dependency. And Alex was very literal also in his beliefs. And he was a bit of a true believer as well. So I don't think it took a huge amount of convincing to get him on board. And
3: that makes sense
2: for Chad to, to kind of see him as the ideal kind of an ideal follower of his belief system.
3: He was a true believer also. that's, although it does seem like he was questioning it at the end before, before he died.
2: Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Although the blessing, the, the blessing that Chad gave him might indicate otherwise. But yeah, there there might have been, you're talking about Zulama, right? There might have been a little bit of, there were some question marks.
3: He said something, I forget. It was like, I'm either a man of God or I'm not. I'm either their fall guy or I'm not. Something. Yeah, I might right. be their
1: fall guy. I'm either a man yeah. of God or but, I am not. Yeah. Exactly.
3: Sounded like it was. According kind
1: of- to dilemma. According to Zilema in her police interview, she stated oh. that this is, yeah, what he said at the end. Yeah. yeah. So. According
3: to Zilema. So maybe he's. Yeah. Sounds- oh, yeah. <laughs>
2: well, even, even Lori, you know, if you think about the, the Melanie Gibb call, even Lori questioned Chad a little bit. I mean, it didn't last, but even Lori apparently said something to the effect of either Chad Daybell is. A prophet, or the what he like the biggest devil that there ever was, or something like that. Oh, I didn't so, hear
3: that? Mm-hmm. Interesting.
2: So, I mean, I you know, it, I think that's an interesting element of this case is that some of the biggest players had moments of questioning and moments of kind of self reflection that mm-hmm. where they were able to stand back a little and, and wonder if this was real. <laughs> Unfortunately for us, though, those moments didn't last very long. I guess. Right. Those, those seem to be fleeting moments.
3: So you mentioned Zulema. Do you think that it's possible that she killed Alex?
1: Tom said he was coming with the questions, and he has <laughs> not disappointed.
3: These are all questions that have come up. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: You you came in with guns blazing,
1: Tom. But thank you anyway.
2: <laughs> I. That's a really. That's. I think. Wow. Uh, did you want to take that one more? You know, I yeah, I yeah,
1: I'll take that one. I'll take that one. This is what I think after looking at the evidence and and like everything else. I say I can't. I can't prove this. His his autopsy is uh, a pulmonary embolism, just like everybody else in this uh, case.
2: <laughs> no, that's <it. laughs> There's a lot Tammy, of incidences. Yeah, a lot Tammy,
1: of. Elden Claussen, don't know if you've looked at Eldon Claussen, yeah. but I I can send you down that the Elden Claussen watch Bernadine's interview uh, on our channel for that. I'll I'll be sharing that on our podcast soon. I think one of two things, Zulema or Alex himself, I tend to lean towards Alex in the patriarchal blessing that Chad gave Alex that was shared in court. That was something all of us heard for the first yeah. time. We had read that, but never heard it. That was a heavy moment for Hard me. Yeah. When we heard Chad giving Alex this patriarchal blessing that said that he was his, you know, his sister's protector that he was going to be an incredible person that even in the afterlife, he would help save children. And it stated that he would know when to cross over to the other side. And to me, that is a very telling line that that chat is almost implying. You're going to know when it's time. You're not, it's going to happen when it happens. Like most of us, when it comes to, to death or thinking about our own mortality, it's you will know when, then you throw in the fact that there was a call before his death with Chad yeah, and that Chad allegedly gave him a blessing from Hawaii. He was in Hawaii with Lori at the time of his death and there was a blessing.
3: That one, to me, like you gave him permission to die.
1: Correct. Exactly. And then you throw in that the day before Tammy Daybell's body had been exhumed and that he was saying I'm either a man of God or I'm not. They, I might be their fall guy. He throws in to Zaleema where a bag of money might be, if something happens to him, he goes to Mexico prior. All of these things tell me that it was not just a natural pulmonary embolism. It might have been I, and I also believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was two, a bilateral like two. That's that's oh, unique. So so I think believe that the autopsy says both of his long so that's unusual and i do believe so i believe the autopsy but what caused that and i think there might have been something he picked up in mexico and he might have chosen to do that himself and, and maybe Zulema knew perhaps Zulema knew that that was going to happen
3: this is another thing all
1: speculation everyone yeah. that whole thing that whole thing right there lauren's opinion no fact well, well and, and I shared the evidence that took me there. I shared the evidence that took me there, but we don't know what happened.
3: To even get further out on a limb, though, that made me kind of wonder if drugs weren't more involved in all of this. Not not like psychedelic drugs, but drugs that will kill you, that may be hard to identify, maybe in all the deaths. And that that's what took yeah. me kind of back to Tylee, thinking you know, maybe she was drugged, hopefully. And yeah,
1: we can know. hope. We can hope, or, or the allegedly Tammy becoming more tired before her death, even though she was also doing Zumba. So, you know, it depends on who you talk to, but yeah, yeah, we can only, I'm with you. We can only hope. I I know what you mean. Like you just hope for some sort of mercy.
3: It gives me a little bit of something to hang on to, I guess. I understand. So on a lighter subject, Lauren, you were at the trial every day, right? Yes. Was some of it confusing as it was happening to you like were you able to just keep up with it right along or was it kind of like well that's a lot I'm trying to wrap my head around all this stuff
1: well i had i had a benefit that you didn't have i knew a lot about the case going in everything that you guys you know were not supposed to have watched i had watched oh. and i had been reporting on it there were particular moments that were difficult for me to keep up on when it came to the technical stuff, when they were going through the FBI cast data system, keeping the different phone numbers straight. But that's where I felt you guys had the upper hand because you had your notebooks in front of you with like the lists of the different burner phones. And we didn't have that. They had it on the screen, but it was so tiny. None of us could see it. So I was trying to like memorize or tweet the entire phone numbers. I needed like a graph to be (laughs) able to know because, because the way they have to say it is this, burner phone with this number pinged yeah. here. And then this burner phone pinged here. And they're not telling you that Alex's phone pinged here. They're telling you a phone number pinged somewhere. Right. So those were the moments that were really hard for me. And I've had to go back in my notes and really, really study that. Yeah. So so on those moments, I think actually you were better off with what was I mean, in front of you.
3: I didn't take a lot what? of notes. And as it was kind of getting number the Middle of the trial, I was thinking that maybe I should have been taking better notes all along there, but it didn't matter because other people were doing that for me. And yeah, they, yeah. They to um, access to that. yeah.
1: But you know, I have an, I have the religious background, and I had the reporting background, and a vast knowledge about this case sitting, yeah, in there that you didn't have,
3: so I asked, that was helpful I, to me. I, I was having a hard time sometimes. Up Which and, parts? I mean, Which I parts? You know, a lot of uh, the detectives, you, you mentioned the texts and emails and whatever, all that kind of stuff kind of got to be a lot at times. Trying to understand how they could figure out that Alex was over here at a certain time. I understand all that now because I went back and studied it all and figured it out. But at the time, I was really not following all of that. But I, I got the point. The point was that they were able to figure out where he was and pinpoint it. That's all I needed to know at the time, but right, kind of didn't understand it. Yeah,
1: they had to, they had to share that in a very technical way. That it, yeah. it, it was, it was kind of hard. I agree.
3: So this one's yeah. a little more conjecture, but do you think that people, some other people, maybe knew the kids were dead? The Melanese, Zulema, um, Audrey. Do you think any of those people might have known?
1: That was a question. Actually, the chat wanted to ask you, but your thoughts and what they might know. So maybe we can all share.
3: <laughs> I think so.
1: <laughs> yeah.
3: How could, they must have, which I'm wondering now, like, are the cops getting after some of these people? Do they have deals? Maybe we'll never know. Right. Okay.
1: Yeah. The, the chat has been wondering what you thought of, of particularly Melanie Gibbs or David Warwick's testimony, knowing that they were there, right? They were there that night in a, in a small town home. This isn't like they didn't like have their own wing. Didn't
3: they have um, Nightmare. I know I know they I remember that they it um, was a nightmare. Uh Alex walked by them with JJ on his shoulder and walk upstairs, right? Mm-hmm. And then was it uh, Warwick who had a nightmare, woke up or something? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. That was all just weird to me. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And he and he conveniently didn't remember anything.
3: Yeah. Right. He I mean So either he knew what was going on or he was involved in it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I appreciated actually the defense, the defense when it came to David Warwick or others. I actually thought that the defense did a valuable job there pointing out their strange beliefs as well. I'm yeah. curious what you thought of that because that, this would be confusing if you didn't know much about the case. I knew who David Warwick was. I was looking forward to hearing from him. I knew his story. So I can't imagine having to take all of that yeah. in for you.
3: I needed time to think about. And luckily, you know, things move along slow and then there's a break or whatever. So you do get time to contemplate what you heard. And I would think back and think, I think I was being kind of gullible listening to that witness, you know, like maybe an hour later I was in the jury room or something thinking back on what I heard. Thinking, you know, I'm just taking that, that person's word for the truth, but who knows if they're telling the truth or not. It was not always very easy to tell.
1: Right. And I think the defense, the one thing the defense did well is point out that did they know more by, by right. pointing out their very odd beliefs and their conspiracy theories and how united right. they were with Lori and, and Chad. I don't know if it diminished their testimony as much as it showed that right. there was a large group of people that likely knew more. Especially
3: then, when, when the Audrey Baratiero. Mm-hmm. That,
0: that, Baratero.
1: Mm-hmm. Baratero. Baratero. Yeah.
3: yeah. I like it. I like that. There the defense is putting up a little bit of a fight there, and I thought that was good. Yeah.
1: How did you feel Sorry. about her testimony? That was that was a new one for me. I mean, I knew of her, but nobody had heard from her until that moment. Right. So that yeah. was a big Sorry. one.
3: Yeah. She hadn't said anything to the grand jury or anything going into it. That was just right. all a surprise.
1: What did you think of her testimony when you heard it?
3: I was kind of Thinking, wow, you know that's crazy. But then it's—I don't know who she is. Is she telling the truth? Or, and then when she got cross-examined, it was a little bit kind of like, yeah, who knows if, if any of what she said was true or not? It didn't really matter that much to me whether she was telling the truth or not at that point.
2: Yeah. Did you? I, I just have a quick question here, Tom. Did on the issue of all the people that seemed to know that that you know, with the defense implying that there were multiple members of this group that knew. Did you feel like that? That I think the defense was trying to do that to lessen Lori's culpability. Right. Did Did you feel like that was effective in any way?
3: No, because I felt like they were probably right. I, I think okay. that that it was a bigger conspiracy and there were more people involved. Lori was their mom. That's okay. All. But,
2: so okay. So in some ways, that strategy may have backfired a little bit. Right,
3: exactly. And and uh, if being her mom, their mom, if. If she had, like, the next day called the police or whatever, said, Oh, my kids has been killed, and then tried to cover it up, that would be one thing. But she lied about it. She went to Hawaii and later along. The beach. Right. She got married. She did all this crazy stuff and just went on with her life after her kids had been killed. And, yeah.
2: Yeah. not Not a normal response. Yeah. <laughs> <Not at all. laughs>
3: yeah. I don't know how much time we have. I have more questions.
2: Okay. Go I, for I it. I think we're okay.
1: okay. Yeah, so, go ahead, John. What did you want to say? Yeah, we have I
2: thought we're I think we're, we're kind of getting close to winding down here, but
1: Yeah, so yeah, a little bit close. Yeah, because of our we're going to hit bedtime soon yeah. for our child. I
3: yeah, think but like, keep going. to be. Okay. Yeah. But I wanted to ask you about John Thomas. Do you have any opinion on why he felt like he had to tell us? So, I I've looked into his background. He's an impressive guy. He's a very qualified defender, but he felt for some reason that he had to tell us he was a diver in college when he was talking about himself in court. And I just thought that was kind of curious. And I wondered why did he do that?
1: I actually don't even remember that part, honestly. Really? Yeah, when you brought him up. I, I thought of a lot of things and I don't remember that moment. What was the okay. context with so- that?
3: It must have been the first time that he introduced himself to the jury, I guess. I don't remember. Mm, exactly.
1: They were doing introductions. You're right. They were doing yeah. introductions.
3: I remember very, very well him describing himself as a diver in college. And well, yeah. Okay. I'll leave it at that. But, yeah. that's I think
2: they were trying to make it a little more personal. I think they were yeah. trying to be a little more relatable. I think they, they both did that. You know, it, it's a common defense strategy just to try to connect to the jury. I think to make things a little more personable and,
3: Okay. I so okay. I think
2: uh, there there would be no compelling reason to do that unless he's just trying to connect to the jury.
3: Yeah, From my for my perspective as a first time juror, it seemed like out of nowhere. Okay. <laughs> maybe unusual. <laughs> yeah. right. I don't know. Um, you're
2: thinking you're thinking what does this have to do with the case?
3: Well, not just that, but why did he, he, had, he there was a lot of things he could have told us about himself that Yeah. Would have had a big impression on me. Anyway, we've kind of, some of these we've kind of gone over. So I've been watching uh, the hearings, or the Chad hearings, and he sits there like a statue. <laughs> John, is there a, any kind of psychological explanation for that?
1: Thank you for bringing this up because it's a question I would also like to ask
3: it's my weird. husband.
1: So yeah. Weird. And John, you've seen this, you've seen this in every hearing, but this, this last hearing, just so you know, John, um, cause I, I was watching it live with our gems and John was busy. Um, he's John's been dealing with a lot this week, as many of you know, yeah. but this was a four hour hearing John. And you know, we see him in these spurts, but like he did not move. He was like a wax figure. And he would kind of slouch too, right? He was kind of slouching. I mean, John knows what he looks like. He slouches, but he hardly moves. You're like waiting for him to blink.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think my short explanation would be that if he's standing there like a statue, it's because he is a statue. <laughs> and what I what I mean by that is that, that this isn't someone with a lot of affect or a lot of emotion. Okay. You know, Chad is he's he's not someone that seems really comfortable with his emotions and he's not comfortable expressing his emotions. And that would not be atypical of someone who lacks empathy or someone who might engage in these types of activities that, you know, that he's, there's a detached quality to Chad Debo. And I think that type of detachment, you know, makes committing crimes, especially heinous crimes like this more likely or more, more probable. I mean, some of it could be a strategy, you know, some of it could be his defense attorney prior telling him, look, don't show any emotion, try to, try to act like a statue because I don't want people, I don't want the cameras to, or I don't want the public to speculate about certain, if you show emotion or if you cry or not that he's capable of that, but if, so some of it could be his defense strategy in the sense that his lawyer, his attorney's trying to keep a lid on any speculation about his body language. And we all know that there's now, I don't know hundreds of YouTube channels that do body language analysis. And so every one of them would be picking it up. Right. So I, okay. so some of it could be that, but some of it I think is just who he is. That's, you know, he's, he's very statue like in his life and he doesn't express a lot of emotion. And so I think, I think that's part of it. Somebody just mentioned he's a psychopath. I can't, definitively say that, but uh, a psychopath, if he was a psychopath, a psychopath is someone who does typically psychopaths do not express emotion. And uh, it's actually kind of hardwired in their brains that they struggle with emotion. They're able to feign emotion sometimes when it's necessary to dupe people, but they not don't, they don't really have emotions the way most normal people would.
3: So I can call him a crazy psychopath.
2: (laughs) You can, I can't. That's (laughs) great. Yeah. I'll let you get a little bit.
0: As
1: Colette points out, put Jason Mao in front of him and then he'll show emotion. He'll he'll cry (laughs) when he (laughs) talks about Jason Mao in his speeches. But uh, there's someone else that doesn't ever move. And uh, we have that on our, our true crime collection on YouTube as well. We talked about John's assessment of the Tylee interview after Charles was killed, but he also assessed Alex Cox. And while well, he was being interviewed after Charles's death, and it is precisely the same. He doesn't move, even when they leave the room. So this whole question about is John Pryor telling Chad not to move? The police officers leave the room, and Alex still sits in the same position. Yeah, still
3: doesn't it's, a, move.
2: it's a remarkable. It's a remarkable. I don't remember how long it lasted. We took a look at it hour, mm-hmm. hour and a half. But yeah, it's a, it's an amazing. Moment in terms of understanding Alex Cox because he really he really is just like a statue. He has no affect, no empathy, no remorse. Apparently,
3: I haven't been around people like that. So
4: yeah, <laughs>
3: it was something really right. me. And I I got to a point where I was just staring at him, waiting for him to do something, and, and he just didn't. It was crazy. Do you think that part of his <laughs> game early on was was he like a wannabe polygamist or at least i think so i think so yeah
1: but i don't even know if he had an end game i think if you were to say to him john says this a lot about the criminals he assesses that one of the questions he always asks them is why did you do this and their answer is usually i don't know i'm I'm telling john's story for him he can jump in anytime he wants but i'm going to suspect that perhaps Chad might say the same thing I don't know if he said well I set this plan in motion because what I really wanted was five wives I think that he probably would have loved five wives and he was collecting quite a harem at the end there but I don't I don't know if he if he knows that if that makes That's
3: sense something I wondered about too with the other witnesses and the women was there more going on that we know about
1: i've I've heard pretty much with Julie Rowe I know that he shared with Julie Rose, she was a, a wife in a past life. And he certainly talked with Julie Rose about Tammy dying. And he shared with Melanie Gibb that she had been a wife in a past life.
3: Yeah, and, he that, like,
1: and that there was definitely another woman that he was having at the very least an emotional affair with in Arizona that we also know of that, that investigators police right. were interviewing. So, yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It,
2: yeah. If he didn't have the con- conscious goal of polygamy, I think it was definitely on his radar. So it may not have been a deliberate, conscious goal that he was striving to attain. But I, I think it was he was cl- he was clearly experimenting with that possibility. I think I think Lori may have changed the equation a bit in the sense that when he meets Lori, so prior to Lori, he's flirting with a lot of different people, including Julio. That's a complicated topic, but yeah. but I think when he meets Lori, Lori fulfills a lot of his fantasies, and he checks a lot of boxes in terms of his so-called perfect woman. And so I, th- I think at that point, maybe he wasn't as interested in polygamy, maybe. But uh, I, but I don't know. Maybe maybe Lori would. Have, who knows? Who knows what what may have happened if
3: I was wondering about his relationship with Tammy and how much of it she was aware of. Doesn't seem to be involved in any of his things other than her publishing business. I
2: think she definitely knew about his relationship with Lori at some point, maybe late in the game.
3: Yeah. Yeah. That might be what caused her demise.
2: Yeah. Right. There was there was an email exchange with Charles that seemed to indicate that she was aware of their relationship.
3: Yeah. Well, we actually got to the end of the questions that I wrote down. I didn't think that would ever happen. <laughs> I have a lot more, but um, that was more than I thought we would get through.
1: Well, we're getting many requests to have juror number 18 back. They they want um, Tom back. <laughs> and and I, don't, I don't know if you know this, Tom, but did you know that we have over 4,000 people watching with us right now live?
3: Good thing so. I did not know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: I wasn't going to tell you that. But there you go. There you go. There's the bomb drop. Surprise!
3: Oh, <laughs> oh that's <laughs> uh, yeah. That's, that's, good. that's significantly
2: like more than we're in the courthouse for yes. two months.
3: Right, right. That's a lot. Yes. But when you People say that, here, Lauren, let's good.
2: bring up the book again, just that the, the so everyone knows what the book is and when it's coming out.
1: Yeah, share share your book, share your project, Tom, with All us, right. and then yep. yes.
3: Again, the title is Money, Power, and Sex. The Laurie Daybell the Lori Vallow Bell trial by juror number 18 and I get into as deep as I can get into in this trial not as deep as these guys I'm not as knowledgeable about it as they are I, I'm trying but, uh, but I get into some other stuff too that might be interesting so I'll just kind of leave it at that I hope people will read it the, the profits from the book are going to a good organization that helps children in need and that's kind of what motivated me to do this and I'm not a writer. It's my first attempt, but now that I'm mostly done with it, I think I'm really glad that I did it. So, So hopefully people will read it.
1: We will certainly be reading it here. We look forward to it. A juror is such an important perspective. And the more I talk to you, the more I realize just how important your, Tom's perspective is. We'll look forward to reading it. And of course, having you back and when it's published again, because of the sensitive nature of the people you have interviewed and the information you have, it cannot be published until after Chad Daybell's verdict, but you will be starting some pre-sales soon perhaps. And we'll let everybody know when that
3: happens. I'm not sure when that will be, but yeah, I'll let you know for sure. I see that Kay is listening and I like her comments. She is. (laughs) Kay
1: says, Tom, you've been a spectacular guest. Please do come back yeah so you you came with the questions it's not every day that (laughs) john
2: right we we didn't get to interview you it it was reciprocal so
3: yeah it was for me to get this opportunity and i'm going to take advantage of it okay
1: (laughs) well as we shared this is a conversation among friends including our gems here in chat and we're so grateful for our gems that are here and and for also being here such short notice switching from saturday our typical night to friday thank you everyone and Thank you everyone for the warm wishes you've sent John this week as well. For those that know, it's been a hard week for John and Tom. We we, we couldn't have had a, a better guest and a better conversation. This is exactly what we wanted tonight after kind of a long week for our family. So thank you for, for being here. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And thank you for giving us a chance to kind of look behind the curtain into the jury box a little bit. And that's, that's a rarity. We don't get to see that often, so thank you for sharing your thoughts and your perceptions and oh, what, what it was like to to sit there.
3: For
1: Yes, thank you for trusting us. Go ahead, John. Yeah, Yes, yeah, yeah,
3: exactly. Trustworthy journalists, and I appreciate that. I'm very happy to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you. And for our gems, thank you so much. Please hit subscribe. Please hit like. If you appreciated this with Tom, please hit the thumbs up or the like because it is actually – how more people will learn about Tom and his book and his experience. It it will show up in the algorithms more. And thank you everyone for subscribing and for being here tonight. And truly Tom, thank you for being so open to have this very vulnerable conversation with us, with friends. So
3: thank you. I appreciate it. Yes.
1: All right. Thank you everyone. Have a wonderful Friday night and we'll see you soon again. We'll see you. All right.
2: Take care. Good night. Take care. Good night.
1: Hello, Hidden Gems. It's Lauren with Hidden, a true crime podcast. As a TV reporter, I learned the art of visual storytelling. So if you're like me, you enjoy listening, but also viewing. You can actually head to our YouTube channel, Hidden True Crime, to watch these interviews. Hit the subscribe button for surprise lives and breaking news. And for exclusive content, things Dr. John and I only dare say behind a paywall, become a Patreon member at patreon.com slash hidden true crime. You'll find bonus episodes, early releases, and insider info. Thank you for your endless support.